0: a number of devotionals out there, and it's a pretty common practice within Christian communities, at least, to have a book with a collection of scriptures and meditations that carry somebody across the course of a year, but most of the ones that exist tend to come out of a very particular theological, and I would argue they would disagree political viewpoint most of those devotionals tend to be focused very much on my personal relationship with Jesus how to be a nice person and very little else I actually think that's a political agenda as well Um, and it's it's an agenda that separates us from each other my name is Shonda Rani Cha. I'm the executive director and founder at the Oakland Peace Center.
1: I'm Amber Khan, and this is Inspired. Reverend Shonda Rani Jha's view that personal devotions without reflection on connection to community is a political statement and reflects her own wrestling with a spiritual calling— I first met her in 1998 at the Interfaith Alliance. She had just finished working on Capitol Hill and was drawn to finding a way to bring her faith into policy work. We were both young and trying to figure out where we fit into this world. And for Shonda, the road led to seminary and ministry. Today she's the founder and executive leading the Oakland Peace Center. She's an anti-racism lecturer and trainer and an ordained minister in the Christian Church Disciples of Christ. Ja is also a prolific author. Her latest book, Liberating Love Daily Devotional, 365 Love Notes from God, is a departure for her. Instead of focusing on the everyday people creating change in an uncertain world, Ja draws on the stories of the spiritual ancestors, who faced challenges in a world also filled with suffering. Our conversation begins with her family story.
0: I was raised in an interfaith household. My father was Hindu from uh, West Bengal, India. My mother is Scottish Presbyterian from the tiny little island of Great Cumbria in Scotland. I was born in England. and We came to the States when I was a toddler. So I was raised with an appreciation of religious diversity from childhood. Part of my parents' story was In building up a community that would accept their interfaith relationship, even when we were in Britain, that meant building out a community that was Egyptian Muslims and Tunisians and Christians from Pakistan. And so I grew up in this community where diversity of faith was valued diversity of culture was valued and I lived in Akron Ohio where that was not necessarily always the case so (laughs) I'm really grateful for my parents making sure that I was exposed to that and Jesus was my best friend from the time I was three I have a very uncomplicated relationship with my faith I was really fortunate that the faith I was introduced to was one that was very grounded in everybody thriving. I don't know that it was seen as political, but it was definitely a framework where I was allowed to embrace the questions about fairness and then about justice and then about inclusion and equity. Mm. I'm not saying that I didn't have people who were telling me I was going to hell for not saving my father's soul. I'm not saying it was uncomplicated, but I was really, really fortunate to be mentored up by a pastor who was a former Air Force chaplain and therefore deeply committed to multiculturalism and deeply committed to the American ideal of a multiracial, immigrant-focused and supportive America. He bragged to the entire church when my family became U.S. citizens. He made it part of the children's moment. And he also made sure to take every single one of the kids in our church to the shelter in downtown Akron and to learn about the food pantry there. And not just to say we should serve people, but to encourage us to ask, why are people hungry in the first place? Mm. My parents both come from working communities, and they and I have always been most at home in communities of working folks. It's why I went to college in Baltimore. It's why I went to seminary on the south side of Chicago. It's why I ended up in Oakland, because working people are my people.
1: What drew you to seminary as a woman who comes from you know this multicultural tradition?
0: I have always had a deep passion for systems change, and so that's why I was working in Congress, why I was doing political work, it was why I was involved in the religious liberties work and the advocacy with and for religious minorities at the Interfaith Alliance, and I had a deep commitment to faith and the possibilities of faith. And so many of my, you know, the models I had for how to do the work I cared about were people like Howard Thurman and Dr. King and Malcolm X, religious figures. So I always thought I was going to have to choose. Either I was going to be in the political arena affecting systems change, or I was going to be in the spiritual arena encouraging people of faith to engage in that work. So seminary was my chance to delve into that spiritual work. I thought and I thought I was going to have to give up the political work. I thought I was going to have to give up the systems change work. Fortunately, I went to a seminary that had a dual degree program. So I ended up doing a Master of Divinity and a Master of Public Policy. With, with the plan of going to a church and engaging in social justice work as one part of my broader ministry. And I pictured the church with, you know, 400 members and the big choir with the robes, and that was going to be the work I did. And instead, I fell in love with a congregation that had dwindled to 10 people, Wow. largely because of white flight and the crack epidemic and the ways in which the members of that church had divested from that community and that church. So there were 10 faithful, loyal, mostly African-American people showing up on a Sunday in a 40,000 square foot building. And so the issue of how do we create a culture of abundance and a commitment to justice for people beyond ourselves in the midst of crisis has ended up being my work for the 15 years I've been in Oakland now.
1: I want to ask you about the intersection of your work and your engagement in addressing the needs that people have, there has been a lot of internal reflection and internal discussion, even in traditions like yours. I mean, I believe your denomination was one of the first, for example, to be affirming of LGBTQ members becoming members of the clergy. Yet, I know that you have spent decades working well before anti-Black racism became a popular term around the dinner table when it wasn't? I think
0: one of my first dabblings into intersectionality was when we were doing work on religious liberty. And I think I started, I I felt very strongly that we couldn't do religious liberty if we weren't also doing what we back in the day just referred to as civil rights and really what civil rights meant was addressing injustices against black folks just engaging the fact that those things played off of each other Mm -hmm. i didn't have the language for it yet i didn't have a really strong framing but that was really very much at the heart of uh, the beginnings of my intersectional work the role of women showed up later while i was in seminary and really it was once i got to oakland that folks helped me connect all of those things to class I've always had a passion for workers' rights, but to realize the intersections of all of those things. The thing I wanna say that I have been, that has been the biggest joy of my work in Oakland has been I show up in a lot of secular spaces. The Oakland Peace Center is technically a secular space, but because this country has such a bifurcated notion of secular versus religious, the gift of the Oakland Peace Center is it's a space where people get to bring their whole selves Their activist selves, their queer selves, their beautiful black immigrant whatever uh, cultural selves, and their spiritual selves, and so a lot of radical frontlines folks don't have a place where they get to bring their spirituality into their frontlines work, and showing up at a fast food worker's rally and talking about how they are being Moses and Ronald McDonald is being Pharaoh gets a laugh. (laughs) Yes, it absolutely gets a laugh. And it's a story the workers know as well as I do. Hmm. So there's something about getting to the permission giving of bringing our spiritual selves into our activism that I think is actually really liberating. Most of us get through the day because of our faith. And we also learn the courage to fight, often outside of our faith. What does it look like when we have the strength of the union or the strength of our siblings in the movement and the strength of our faith? I was a part of a beautiful forum just this past Sunday. The Bangladeshi Women's Empowerment Network had decided they really wanted to help their membership understand better why we should be in solidarity with the Movement for Black Lives. And they invited a bunch of 20-something second-generation Bangladeshi Americans and myself to do a little bit of historic context about what the history of anti-black oppression is, what the history of black and South Asian solidarity is, what the history is of when we as South Asians have chosen to align ourselves with whiteness and distance ourselves from blackness and what the way forward could be. And it was magical because I, somebody asked the question about housing justice and I happened in passing to mention the work that I'm doing around helping faith communities who own their own land, build affordable housing. Mm. My dream is that the mosques in our community build affordable housing for formerly incarcerated people who came to their Muslim faith in prison and now get a spiritual community and housing and resources. People came alive because for the first time in one of these conversations, their faith could be part of a solution to an injustice. It was in a very tangible way because we all see the tents. We all see the communities that don't have a place to live. We're all living in the midst of this crisis. And to realize that our call to justice, because that organization cares deeply about justice, and our spiritual communities could be aligned in the same struggle was really beautiful.
1: Coming up after the break, I continue my conversation with Reverend Shonda Ja and why she felt it was time for a different kind of daily devotional. This is Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. Stay with us. Welcome back to Inspired. I'm Amber Khan. My guest this week is Shonda Rani Jha. Raised in a multicultural family, Jha is the daughter of a Hindu father and Scottish Presbyterian mother. And Jha found her spiritual calling as a community activist and ordained minister in the Christian Church Disciples of Christ. She's a prolific author, and her most recent book, Liberating Love, Daily Devotional, 365 love notes from God is not only a departure from her typical writing, she wrote it in a place she never expected to be. Let's get back to my conversation. Why is it time for a spiritual I I, I wanna know I wanna know the backstory here. <laughs> so
0: there are a number of devotionals out there, and I feel like The time has come for a devotion that regrounds us in community, reconnects us to the stories of our spiritual ancestors, and gives us some resources, honestly, to take on empire and to figure out how to show up for each other in the midst of scary times like this.
1: Taking on empire And addressing scary times. When you refer to both of those things, what are you speaking to directly?
0: I was reflecting on the fact that during the year of 2017, every sermon I preached referenced creeping fascism in this country. And one of my friends recently said, It's not creeping anymore. I think the reality is for any of us who are committed to creating compassionate community, what's going on in this country right now, should be terrifying. Standing up and resisting requires a lot of spiritual strength and encouragement. I've been really inspired by a lot of the activists on the front lines uh, of the movement for black lives. Many of the folks I know who are in leadership of those kinds of movements are deeply spiritual people. It's what gives them the strength to show up in the streets, to show up for each other. To resource each other, to build out mutual aid for each other. I think we need those kinds of tools to keep us going in this long term struggle.
1: Who is this devotional for?
0: I think it's intended for several folks. My ex evangelical friends who are hungry for the daily spiritual practices of the evangelical church, but for whom the evangelical church no longer speaks to them. I did hope that it would be valuable to folks from the more liberal church traditions who don't always have a daily spiritual practice to encourage them along the way. So my hope was that this would reintroduce them to some of the figures of the Bible that they could relate to and who could be a source of encouragement. And particularly for my activist friends, many of whom can't find a spiritual community that serves their needs well so that they could have a little bit of support and encouragement from the divine as they continue to fight in the streets and in the courthouses and in City Hall and in all of the places where they're trying to affect positive change.
1: You know, you're describing um, a spiritual reservoir of sorts that fuels, particularly, you're speaking to the resistance movement known as Black Lives Matter. One of the things that's come up in conversation is a perception, in fact, that the the movement is secular and that a lot of these movements that are around and organized around justice and rights are devoid of the spiritual language that you find yourself deeply rooted in.
0: Yeah, I think that's interesting. I think it's it's a convenient narrative and it's a common narrative.
1: Do you think it's an accurate I, narrative?
0: I don't think it's accurate. And I I can say that because um Alicia Garza was a longtime organizer in Oakland before she gave birth along with Opal Tometi and Patrisse Cullors to the Black Lives Matter movement. And she's a profoundly spiritual person. Her spouse, Malachi Garza, is on the board of Auburn Seminary. I've heard them speak. I've seen them move out of deep spiritual commitments. Most of the organizers I know here are. They may not be folks who show up in temple or mosque or synagogue or church on a regular basis, but they create ritual. They connect with the divine in a whole bunch of ways and they connect with each other and help each other remain grounded in their connections to the divine in each other and with their ancestors and I think that that's the fuel that we need. I'm really struck by the fact that a lot of our resistance kicked into gear just after the inauguration in 2017 uh, around the Muslim ban and the actions that I attended consistently were supported and not just supported in numbers but supported in food showing up at those actions that were brought by Muslim soccer moms and Buddhist yoga hipster practitioners and all sorts of folks that you don't consider to be kind of the diehard radical activists, and you maybe don't consider to be formally religious folks, but they're, they have spirituality embedded in their day-to-day lives, and that's what led them to show up. It's what led them to support the folks who needed to be at the front and center.
1: I want to ask you about the meditations specifically now. Is it a multiracial uh, meditation guide, or is it rooted in one particular tradition?
0: So it's not an interfaith devotional, but it is a devotional that points Christians towards a God who is inclusive of all. I get a little nervous about this devotional sometimes because each devotion has a scripture and then a reflection meant to encourage the reader that's written from the first person as if God is saying it to them. Mm. This is a little terrifying to me because it is, I'm trying to find the right word. It's it's a little audacious. I keep thinking to myself, I hope God forgives me for this. I hope God knows my intent was good. That said, the number of folks I know who have felt rejected by the church who have read these devotions and been reminded how much God loves them has really made me feel like it might have been worth the risk Mm. theologically.
1: Have you experienced any pushback from anyone who's read this?
0: I've invited input from people across a diversity of Christian denominations. And interestingly enough, some of my friends who come from more theologically conservative, culturally conservative backgrounds said, it took me a couple of devotions to get comfortable with this structure, because it's not how devotionals are usually done. But once I got used to it, I was really moved by it. And I felt like my relationship with God became more intimate. So I've been really grateful for that. I will say I have friends who have written books that are very inclusive, and they've received a lot of backlash from the religious right. And that might happen. Interestingly enough, there is a very popular evangelical devotional that in some ways maybe inspired this as an alternative.
1: Which one is that?
0: It's called Jesus Calling. And it was written by a woman who's a missionary. And every single one of those devotions is written in the first person as if Jesus is speaking them. It's one of the most popular devotionals among Christians in this whole country. And a lot of folks who aren't theologically conservative read it because they're so hungry for a daily devotional that helps them feel connected to the divine on a daily basis when life is so hard. So this was kind of an homage to that with a very different theology. Sometimes Christian devotionals are unconsciously anti-Semitic and I worked really hard to honor the stories of the Hebrew Bible as a critical part of the Christian understanding of the texts rather than simply as things that pointed to the New Testament or the stories of Jesus.
1: Shonda, how did you go about the process for writing this book? I mean, what is what is your process? How long did it take? And where were you when you did it?
0: So the process is just going to give you a little bit of an insight into how nerdy I am. So the first devotion comes from the first book of the Hebrew Bible, Genesis. The second devotion comes from the first book of the New Testament, Matthew, The third devotion comes from the second book of the Hebrew Bible, Exodus, and so on. And the reason I did that was because a lot of us tend to pick and choose our favorite stories and focus on those over and over, myself included. To me, this was a chance for me to encounter the divine in the books of the Bible that I often ignore and to help me encounter stories that I had maybe skipped over before and listen for where the divine showed up. I actually think that every passage in the Bible is in some fashion about liberation. And so this was a chance for me to practice that and to introduce folks who tend to skip to just the popular passages, give them a chance to connect with folks from the whole Bible. I started out planning to do a writing retreat in Mexico to work on it and two days into that retreat I got a call from my mother that my father had been rushed to the hospital and was in a coma. I ended up writing most of the devotional by his bedside during his last week when he was still alive and there was something about having something to focus on that helped me feel connected to God, that helped me get through that week and helped me be present and helpful to my mother instead of getting caught up in what would have been understandable despair. And also it gave me the gift of being surrounded by people who needed encouragement, and to remember who else I was writing it for. And in many ways, I was writing it for myself.
1: I remember that week um, in your life. And unfortunately, your father wasn't able to recover from that. Yeah. And when I saw you, I was uh, kind of struck by your strength, you know, And you were and have always been a pillar for your parents and someone that they have just poured so much love and um, pride into glow, frankly, when they see you. I mean, that's my memory of every time I saw your dad around you and your mom for certain. I was
0: never, no matter how little we had, I was never starved for love. Mm. I had the most loving parents you could possibly imagine.
1: And when you were sitting in that hospital room and you were working on your devotion sitting near your dad, how did, how did you absorb the grief and the fear around you? You know, what was really
0: remarkable about it was it actually opened me up to what else was going on. And don't get me wrong, when I don't think it's healthy to ignore grief. I think we need to feel our feelings and i don't want to give the impression that i wasn't feeling grief but what was remarkable was as i was going through these stories of people who had struggled and faced all sorts of insurmountable odds because that's what the bible's a collection of stories of it actually opened up space for me to encounter the people who worked at the hospital in a different way my mother and i ended up getting stories of of the nurse from the dominican republic who was like oh your father reminds me of my father. Here's what he's like. Or the, the woman from the Congo who came in and cleaned the room on Wednesdays and Fridays and always gave us the update on her family. Or, you know, there was something about being immersed in the stories of the divine showing up in community that I think allowed me and also my mother to encounter community, even in that hospital room, where it would have been easy to feel isolated and misunderstood and alone in our feelings. There was something really beautiful about over the course of just one week, getting a sense of a community in that hospital. Mm. So that on my father's last day, the nurse who walked us through the process He said, is there any special music you want played uh, as you say goodbye? And he pulled up my father's favorite group on his Spotify playlist so that we could have that experience. And he knew to ask for that because we had talked about um, how much he and my father both loved music over the course of the week. It was little things like that that made it beautiful even in the midst of the pain. What was the song? I'm curious. There, I can't remember the song, but I know it was by a group called Vangelis, V-A-N-G-E-L-I-S. They wrote the theme song from St. Elmo's Fire, but he fell in love with them when he was on a trip to South America and thought they were the most ethereal group he had ever come (laughs) across.
1: There is a story from that time that I remember you telling me about the practice of putting a note on the door outside your father's room for folks to read before they came in. Can you talk about that?
0: Yeah. So while my mother and I were usually there from nine to five every day or yeah, around nine to five, nine to six, uh, we weren't necessarily getting to encounter the night, uh, the night medical crew and I wanted them to know he was a human being, even though he couldn't talk with them. And I had noticed early on in the week, uh, the nurses would talk with him and treat him like a feeble, quaint, little, old immigrant man. I'm not saying those were completely untrue descriptors of him, but my father had, had so much dignity. He worked so hard to get where he was. He had come from this tiny little village in India and was one of the only people who not only left the village, but traveled internationally. He, he was, I don't want to overstate it and say he was a hero in the village, but he was definitely a source of inspiration. I still hear people from the village tell me that. Um, and I wanted the folks who were working with him, not just to see a feeble old immigrant man but to know a little bit about him. And so I put a note on the door so that anybody who interacted with him might invest a little bit more in the way they engaged him. I didn't know whether he could hear them. I didn't know what kind of uh, medical practices they'd be engaging in. I just wanted them to know who they were encountering. What's really interesting about that is a friend of a friend of mine uh, from college, she, is the head of the emergency department at Mount Sinai Hospital. She found out that I had put this note on my father's door for the medical staff. And she said, I wonder what would happen if we implemented that as a practice. They've built out a whole program, uh, done all sorts of metrics on it, and they've discovered that with their unconscious patients, their medical care shifts when the medical staff understands the fullness of their humanity. And 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 it's amazing to see what's kind of emerged from there. And it's beginning to be replicated in other hospitals.
1: Mm. I, I love that story. And I'm thinking about how powerful that can be right now. You know, when you look back, And you think about the time we're in right now, in which loved ones are going to the hospital, and many, many people, as you know, are dying alone. Um, yes the i know many nurses and doctors and healthcare family members and friends who are doing so much with so little and trying to keep family members connected to their loved ones who are in their care and the idea of sending a note and informing and placing that on the outside of a door just seems like such a powerful way to as you describe um Offer this full picture of someone's self that's not just defined by their illness or what they're struggling with at that moment.
0: I think it's also, in a weird way, a gift to the medical staff. Um, my, my colleague at Mount Sinai, she said nurses reported that they felt a deeper connection to the person they were caring for when they knew their backstory. Um, they were still going to provide good care the nurses and doctors uh, of this country and across the world are are heroes but for them to for them to get the gift of seeing someone's humanity in the midst of caring for them um actually ends up helping them feel more valued themselves in the process
1: i really appreciate you sharing that story and i know that that's that was um you know, that, that was a difficult time. And I'm, I know that the grief is one that, you, you know, continues. I, I don't want to make any presumptions about that and about what that loss and that journey of saying goodbye to your father was like. I, I know that that journey took you all the way to India. And I'm wondering if that process, that r- ritual, also informed the way you think about these meditations. I think
0: that's absolutely right. I was really fortunate to take a sabbatical and go to India, take my father's ashes back so that my family could go through some of the traditional Hindu rituals and place his ashes in the Ganges, uh, very near his village, uh, which was a really beautiful thing to experience on the day, um, of the celebration of Maganga, of the goddess of the Ganges River. Um, and that was really powerful. And I was involved in the ritual process and I chanted all sorts of Sanskrit very, very badly. Uh, and and got to do that with my eldest male cousin and had the whole family kind of supporting me in, in the midst of that. And for them to get to feel connected to um, releasing my father, uh, I think was really powerful. And that actually has me thinking about my next book, which is about how connecting with the spiritual and cultural practices of our ancestors can equip us for the work of dismantling white supremacy. And even though that sounds removed from a daily devotional, I'm not sure I would have gotten there if I hadn't spent so much time dwelling in the stories of our spiritual ancestors, and realizing how much they have to teach us, even though the world they inhabited seemed so different from the one we're in right now.
1: Coming up, we continue my conversation with Reverend Shonda Jha. Stay with us. I'm Amber Khan, and this is Inspired. My guest this week is Reverend Shonda Rani Jha. Raised in a multicultural family, Jha is the daughter of a Hindu father and Scottish Presbyterian mother who found her spiritual calling as a minister in the Christian church, Disciples of Christ. In addition to being a prolific author and community activist, she's a lecturer and anti-racism trainer. Let's get back to my conversation as she explains why.
0: I'm really passionate about Asian-Americans, first and second generation, understanding the history of how we've been racialized and how we have been shaped. So whenever I do anti-racism work, I often talk about how the first race that was constructed, as we understand race today in the United States, was the white race, and that everything expanded from there, and that whiteness has evolved over time, but... That all of the races are shaped based on this construct of whiteness. And so the choice we make to align ourselves conditionally with whiteness or to align ourselves with a resistance movement and align ourselves with other people of color, I think, is the choice that we get to make.
1: When you find yourself as the person of color standing in front of a predominantly white congregation, you have one way of beginning that conversation. When you are with people of color and particularly Asian Americans, what do you find to be one of the first challenges or do you, do you start your workshops in the same way or do you start them differently?
0: If I'm talking to a white community, I'm usually going to start by sharing something we have in common, and then I'm going to share something that is different about me because they feel safer if they think we're all the same. And so it's important for me to name actually my lived experience, my experiences of systemic racism, mean that my journey has been different than yours. So I put them at ease, then I create some discomfort, and then I talk about some things that all of us have to confront together about harm being done to other communities. And then I talk about what role we have in solving that, uh, which generally involves a lot of listening. It involves a lot of centering the people who are most impacted by those things. And it involves a lot of humble relationship building towards the work of systems change. When I'm talking with an Asian group, I think the bigger barrier for us is the defensiveness. When we hear people talking about anti-blackness, our, our safe space, ironically, is to say, but we've been oppressed too. And so I find it helpful to talk about, here are the things that we've gone through. Here are some hard things we've faced. Here are things that happened to people like us in this country generations before we got here that we didn't even realize are shaping the way we're engaging this country today. And now let's talk about what's been happening to indigenous folks and black folks for hundreds and hundreds of years and what it means for us to be entering into that hundreds of years long process and what it would look like for us to align ourselves with black and indigenous folks rather than unconsciously seeking to align ourselves with a whiteness that is very conditional. This
1: process of creating an awareness about an unspoken or perhaps implicit embrace of a racialized identity, it takes time. Yes. Also, implicit in what you're describing is taking a responsibility for a problem that people don't feel like they are responsible for.
0: Yeah, I think there are different defenses built up. So all of the work that we're doing is related to what I call a culture of white supremacy or systemic racism, if that's an easier term for people to think through. And so I think all of us have different ways that we are harmed by white supremacy because I do think actually everybody is. I increasingly believe there are multiple roles that needs to be played. I think it's fine that there are some folks who are doing some hand-holding and easing people along their path. I want to be real honest and say there are people who have eased me along in my path. I have not always been as conscious of what it means to be engaged in the work of addressing anti-Black racism. I've always cared about civil rights, but I sometimes did it from a place of I had a sense of my intellectual superiority because I went to a fancy college and I definitely have had to do my own work and have had to have people coach me in that. I've had people who have walked me along the path. I think there is also a role for the folks who are on the front lines who are saying, I will not let you show up in this space in any sort of way that's going to harm my community. I think holding that firm line and saying, we are only going to do this work if it is for all people. There was a really interesting intersectional moment very early on in the movement for black lives because Alicia and the and Opal and Patrice, the, the founders of Black Lives Matter, they were really clear on the fact that this movement was for all black lives, incarcerated black lives, queer black lives, trans black lives, homeless black lives all black lives and there was a black denomination that was very anti-woman that was very anti-queer leadership that decided they were going to have a blm sunday and the founders of blm said this doesn't represent the movement and that was a hard thing to do in a moment where that denomination was trying to join a powerful movement they held a really firm line because they said you will not welcome our queer immigrant women bodies into your pulpits you're not actually about this movement. So there's a role for that too.
1: Did you agree with that
0: Shonda? Yeah, I 100% agreed with it. I also understood that there were folks who were attached to that denomination who were like, this is where we start. So, So I think those are equally important roles to play. And there's a third role, and it's the role that I increasingly play, which is there are folks who know things are wrong. There are folks who know things are broken. There are folks who know that this is not the world we want to live in, and they don't know what to do next. Those are my people. One of my books was used in a pastoral care class. I was with those students, and one of them said, I really like what you're talking about. I like how it centers people on the margins in the decision-making processes, but how would you do this in a congregation full of Trump supporters in central Indiana? And I said, I wouldn't. My job isn't convincing people that something's wrong. Mm. My role is for the folks who are like, I know this isn't it, but I don't know what it should be instead. Those are my people.
1: One of the things that you said at the beginning of this conversation that I've just been holding on to is the feeling that we're in this apocalyptic moment. For some people, the apocalypse is actually positive. Yeah, no, I appreciate you asking that because apocalypse
0: and end times are two different things. Now, apocalypse can mean the ushering in of a new world, and apocalypse can mean something as simple as the radical inbreaking of the divine presence to clarify our confusion. So, I think it is an apocalyptic moment in both of those senses, the potential ushering in of a new world cuz we're possibly never gonna go back to an old normal. And that might be a brilliant opportunity, although it is born of horrific cost. It's also, I think this moment of what can be divine in breaking into this crisis moment for us on an individual level. I have spent all of my adult life fighting I'm known as a peace person. I'm known as a unity person. I'm known as kind of a healing violence person. But the reality is everything I've done my whole life has been fighting against the religious right. It's been fighting against unjust laws that were harming poor people. It's been fighting against people who are trying to break down labor organizing. It's been fighting against gentrification. And this few months has been this moment of, Me hearing this voice that's saying, does it always have to be a fight? Mm. It's also been an an almost entire adult life of not having a lot of money, of being very financially self-sacrificial, because that's how I've always understood uh, ministry to manifest itself. And increasingly, and it's coming from sisters of color uh, who are saying, does your life always have to be that hard? Could you maybe... When you're doing so much emotional labor in uh, predominantly white communities, even if it is for the sake of the people of color in those communities, could you maybe get paid for that? And when we are serving communities that benefit from systemic oppression, even though they didn't create that systemic oppression, what does it mean for us to let those communities exploit us in the process of them growing? That's the hard part. I'm not very good at taking care of myself for the sake of taking care of myself. Being the bargain basement anti-racism trainer doesn't actually help the movement because it's teaching white folks that that our work is cheap and doesn't need to be
1: valued. I think that it is really powerful that you are standing up and saying to folks it's time to acknowledge the broken parts And that doesn't mean that we're broken, but we got some broken parts that need to be fixed.
0: Yeah, we do not have to be so self-sacrificial.
1: Before we go, Shonda, can I ask you to share a reading?
0: The Liberating Love Devotion for April 15th. The Book of Esther, Chapter 2, Verses 19 and 20. When the virgins were being gathered together, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Now Esther had not revealed her kindred or her people, as Mordecai had charged her. For Esther obeyed Mordecai, just as when she was brought up by him. And the devotional begins. My beloved daughter Esther was hiding in plain sight. In a nation that distrusted Jewish people, Her uncle told her not to advertise her faith and culture because he wanted her to stay safe. How often my children end up having to hide parts of who they are in order to stay safe in a world ruled by fear, hatred, and ignorance. I long for a better world for you, for your siblings, for your children, and their children. Today, I invite you to pray for an end to hatred fear and ignorance and I invite you to turn to me that you might be an instrument for love courage
1: and compassionate wisdom what does that say to you today right now
0: I do a lot of work around changing systems and structures and taking on institutions and I also don't want to lose sight of the fact that what I pray for in my own life is the starting place of that journey to changing systems, institutions, and structures. I find myself relating to Esther in some ways. Uh, I'm very light-skinned. I could pass for white. And there's something about Esther's story that says, here's why it matters to claim my community. And here's where my relative privilege and power actually require me to stand with my community when they're facing injustice. And I think that's why I chose Esther for today. In some ways, it's my story.
1: That was Shonda Rani Jha, executive director and founder of the Oakland Peace Center. She holds a master's of divinity in public policy from the University of Chicago and is the author of several books, her most recent, Liberating Love Daily Devotional, 365 Love Notes from God. That's all for this week. Producers for this week's show include Kevin McCarthy and Kimberly Winston. Special thanks to our founder, Maureen Fiedler. This program is produced and distributed by Interfaith Voices. To learn more, visit interfaithradio.org, where you can subscribe to the podcast and newsletter. I'm your host, Amber Kahn. See you next week.